Matthew chapter number 4, and I'm going to warn you, I think I've got about a 25-minute introduction and about a five-minute sermon. So if you will stick with me as I started laying this groundwork for this and this thought that I had, it just kept going and going and going and going until uh, I felt like I had established it well enough, the, the, the idea uh, that when I came time to make some application of it, uh, I, I really felt like I didn't have a lot of time. But I, I want to share with you a thought that I had based on this very familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 4. Beginning verse number 1, uh, grow up in church, very familiar with this story, the story of the temptation of Christ. Verse number 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, that's Satan, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him and set, uh, uh, taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him upon the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Side note there, the devil knows Scripture too. You've got to be careful. Verse number 7, Jesus saith, uh, said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In verse number 8, I want you to take note of this last uh, question, this last temptation here. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. This text is Matthew's account of the temptation of Christ. You can cross-reference it with Mark and Luke. And when we talk about temptation here, the word, we're testing, we're testing Christ. There was the Son of God, veiled in the likeness of human flesh. We talked about that, uh, was that Wednesday night, I think. He was 100% man, he was 100% God. It's bad math, but it's good theology. The one difference between his humanity and ours is that he did not have a fallen nature. Romans 8.3, God sending his Son in the likeness of human flesh. There is a difference there. Here in this story, he endured physical and spiritual testing like no one before or since. Thought about Job. Job went through a lot, but he wouldn't have made it through this. Joseph, back in Genesis, he went through a lot. I don't think he would have made it through this. Paul, in the New Testament, not many people in the New Testament went through as much as what Paul did. I don't know if he would have made it through this. By the way, that's the importance of this event. Had Christ merely been uh, uh, just a human man, a descendant of Adam, carrying on the lineage of, of, of depravity, of sinfulness, he would have failed this test. But praise God, he did not fail. We know we can trust him, his character, the power of his sacrifice on the cross, because he passed these tests. 
and not just passed by the way. You know, he didn't just get a hundred on it. Uh, he, he scored an infinity on it. He he completely passed these. Thinking about these, uh, that that first temptation, I thought maybe that has to do with appetite, the natural needs of man for survival, uh, that couldn't cause him to fall. Uh, the 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 second, cast yourself off off the off the temple, and the angels will catch you. Well, that may have to do a little bit with pride, the selfish need of man to for approval. I'll show you I really am the Messiah. I'll jump off of here and you'll see these angels. You'll know I'm the Messiah. But that couldn't cause them to fall either. That third test is where I want to focus this morning. I've heard this story countless times. It's a remarkable, very necessary event in the, in the ministry of Christ stirred the imagination of artists of the past. And here's Christ. He's starving, weak of body, yet strong of spirit. Here is Satan conniving, mocking in in his approach. The two are on a great mountain. Uh, There's a tradition that says it's a mountain down by Jericho. I, I don't know if that's it or not. Nobody knows. It doesn't actually say uh, but wherever this place is, they're they're up on top of this mountain, and uh, I can see in my mind picturing this Satan pointing pointing out and saying, hey, hey, "Look over there, see that? that, that look all around there. That's that's the nation of Israel. It can all be yours. You can rule over. You can have it. I'll give you the keys. See see right over there. That that's that's Jerusalem." Jerusalem's just right there. That's where that's where David ruled. You could be the next David. You could have it. We'll take it away from the Romans. You can have it. There, over there, if we just cross the sea, there's Rome, the great empire. We still marvel at the joke on the internet now is that men think about it every day. I do think about the Roman Empire a lot. I don't know about every day. But it says, there it is. There's the there's Rome, the great empire. We still marvel at today. It can be yours. I'll give you the keys. Oh, down there, there's Egypt. Boy, we still marvel at Egypt. The pyramids and, and everything. You can have it. It can be yours. Like uh, this roll call. Some of the most legendary locations and kingdoms in history. Now, I've known men to trade away their integrity, their good name, their testimony for far, far less. <laughs> I've known those who would seemingly sell their very soul for a promotion or a position. Those who would sell out anything for popularity. Those who would sacrifice their families to chase their own selfish lusts. It's said every man has a price, and too many sell for pennies that which is priceless. I think it's our study this past Wednesday we're talking about John the Baptist and the, the doctrines that he taught. It caused me to think about this in a little bit different light. There in Matthew, if you go back a chapter in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you get to studying the idea of the kingdom, it is a wonderfully rich. I thought about a like a vein of gold. If you you know mining that you get to dig in this, it's just treasure after treasure. If you start finding this, some of this I know we kind of went over a little bit Wednesday, but 
the earliest I think you can clearly discern this coming kingdom, it's all the way back in Genesis 17.6. God promises to Abraham in Genesis 17.6, And I will make thee exceeding fruitful. I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Abraham, some of your descendants, they're going to be mighty. They're going to be powerful. There's going to be kings, royalty in your descendants. Then Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, very key passage. There's a groundwork laid for the coming kingdom. And there's uh, there's five different uh, rules, uh, requirements in place. It said, when there is a king, here's five things. Needs to be an Israelite, cannot be a foreigner, has to be an Israelite. Then there's three things that says, do not multiply these things. Don't trust in these things. Your military says, don't multiply horses, that's military might. Don't multiply gold and silver. That's money. And the other one, it says marriages. Don't multiply wives. And that has to do, I think, with treaties and things because you, you used to marry off your kids and things to, uh, to, to, to form treaties. And the fifth thing is that he should know the law of God. He was supposed to have his own personal copy of the law of God. Those five things. By the way, I don't know a single one of the kings that ever followed through on that. In fact, Solomon failed miserably at every one of those. But this earthly kingdom, and by the way, that earthly kingdom is a foundation for and a shadow of a greater kingdom to come. It began with the choice, the, the earthly kingdom began with the choice of Saul. Saul was rejected, David chosen, a man after God's own heart. God made a covenant with, uh, with David in 2 Samuel chapter number 7, uh, verses 12 through 16. And he said, David, uh, you're going to be the first in a great line of kings. Your son Solomon's going to build the temple. I I'm going to make through him a great kingdom, a dynasty, a throne that's going to last forever. The history of that earthly kingdom had its ups and downs till eventually it was conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, these, these Gentile world powers. But even in that period, even when there was an earthly king, there was always an eye towards the future, an expectation of a kingdom to come, an expectation of a king that would come. God gave glimpses of the coming kingdom to the prophets. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's a speaking figurative of a kingdom, power, dominance, of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up, unto, up to the mountain of the Lord into the uh, house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations. That's rule. He shall rebuke many people. And by the way, there's a he there. That's a king. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This coming great king, this coming great kingdom, a time of peace and prosperity. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44. And in the days of these kings, these Gentile powers, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. That coming kingdom would have a king. Isaiah chapter 7, 
verses 13 and 14. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The King, the Messiah, and his kingdom, that's the hope, the anticipation of Israel. Centuries passed from the days of the prophets, since the days of Isaiah and Malachi and Zechariah and some of these that spoke about this. The Jews were continuing to look forward to a king to come. Kind of wonder in their minds, oh, where is the king? Where is the kingdom? Is it still true? Is it coming? Silence for some 400 years between the Testaments. Until the angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin named Mary in the town of Nazareth. Luke 1, 30-33 And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And that, behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. By the way, it means Savior. He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And over his kingdom there shall be no end. Now that pronouncement, I think, was probably kept a little quiet. Maybe among the family, Mary, Joseph, they knew, they, they knew who that baby was. And then there's Jesus Christ, the heir of David born in David's hometown of Bethlehem. <laughs> the angels couldn't keep silent. They sang and announced His birth, said, fear, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Kings came from out of the east, seeking to offer Him the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Satan, he knew what was going on. He tried to stop this newborn king stirred up Herod. Herod slaughtered the innocents. What a terrible, tragic crime. One of the worst in history, in my opinion. But the infant Christ escapes with Mary and Joseph. They go down to Egypt. They, 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 they come back, and the kingdom kind of fades back into obscurity for about another, you know, about 30 years or so. When suddenly Israel is shaken by the voice of John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, Matthew 3, 2, Repent ye! Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people flock to John. Their faith in the coming king, the coming kingdom, leads them to turn from their sins. They're baptized, uh, changing their lives, looking forward in anticipation for the salvation to come. The air is thick with expectation. 
when one day John looks among the crowds, raises his hands, points out, says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. The forerunner, the herald, announced that the King had come. Christ is baptized by John. His ministry begins. How does it begin? With 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and the temptation, the testing by Satan. Brings us back to our text. Satan knows. There's a lot of debate. What does Satan know? I think he knows a lot. Satan knows that Christ is the coming king. I had a, one of my Bible college teachers say he really didn't even think that Satan wanted to be there, that God like made him go and do this. Uh, I've always liked that. I don't know if I can prove it or not, but I've always liked that idea. Satan knows God's plan for the coming kingdom. So he makes an offer to Christ. He points out the lands and the kingdoms that prophecy said would submit to the coming king. He offers a kingdom greater than any other in history. This will be larger, more grand than that of Alexander the Great, than Genghis Khan, the British Empire. Any of these great world empires would pale in comparison to what was just offered to Christ. It's yours if you will just fall down and worship me. Now, if you stop and think, what would you do in that situation? Jesus offer you the keys to the world. What would you do? I'm going to tell you, I think we'd all be tempted not to say, <laughs> I'm in charge now. I'm going to tell you where it would get us is we'd think, look at what I could do. Look at those starving kids. I, I could fix that. These wars, I could step in. I could stop that. You think of all the problems in this world, we'd become a tyrant out of our desire to do good. How tempting it would be to give in to evil for the sake of doing good. But here's the other element I find fascinating, and it pertains specifically to Christ. To shed some light on it, we're going to jump ahead. We're jumping all around. We went from temptation to all the way, you know, the history. I want to jump ahead now, about three and a half years into the ministry of Christ, into Matthew 26. It is the evening of the Last Supper. In a few short hours, Christ will be arrested, tried, mocked, beaten, crucified. The scene is the Garden of Gethsemane on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. I see Christ in my mind and I can just see the burden, the weight of the cross, the sins of the world already pressing down on Him. Luke describes his state as this in Luke 22:44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The doctors and stuff say that uh, such tremendous stress, the capillaries and things in your sweat glands burst and you're sweating blood. A very real, very, very rare, but uh, shows the great stress that is upon him. Matthew records a portion of two different prayers. In Matthew 26, 39, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In verse 42, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. I don't think we talk enough about Gethsemane. You know, the cross is what's important. That's where he died as a substitute for our sins, but 
I get a feeling that the agonies of, 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 of being the sin bearer really begin there in Gethsemane. It's just the beginning of what he would endure for our redemption. By the way, I'm convinced no mortal man could have endured even a fraction of what Christ endured and suffered. Until there on the old rugged cross, he willingly laid down his life. There's a placard above his head. What did it say? The King of the Jews. His own people rejected him, demanded his death. Now let's go back to the temptation. Satan, it's there he's pointing out. There's the kingdom of Israel. Over there, there's the kingdom of Nabataeah. You know, up there, there's the kingdom of Tyre. All these different grand world kingdoms. Says, aren't they supposed to be yours? You're the Messiah. You can have them. I'll give them to you. You don't have to be rejected. You don't have to be beaten. You don't have to be crucified. You can have it all. Zero suffering. That promised kingdom can be yours now. So I thought about that. I thought, well, that puts that offer into a whole different light. We think about, well, he's just offering, oh, you get the keys to the world, but you realize the world was his already. Satan's offering them, I think, a shortcut, a kingdom without a cross. It's a tempting offer. Kingdom without a cross, all the glory and honor with none of the suffering. A kingdom without a cross. In the wisdom of this world, it seems this will be the obvious course to take. All gain and no pain. But thank God Christ could see beyond the cross. He could see beyond the agony. He knew that for there to truly be a kingdom, there had to be a cross. He told Pilate, John 18, 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. He knew what the world needed was not another human government. I, I get so sick of people saying, here's the answer, it's a new government. Government doesn't fix hardly anything. You know, we ought to, history tells us that. Look around you, we all know that. What this world needed, their number one problem, was sin. We needed deliverance from sin. We needed the suffering Savior of Isaiah 53. We needed that Lamb of God that John the Baptist pointed out that day. He didn't come to make this world His servants. He came to die for our sins. Matthew 20, 28, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. Yes, there would be a cross, but beyond it, an empty tomb. Yes, there would be agony, but beyond it, joy. Hebrews 12, 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The choice was not a kingdom without a cross or a cross without a kingdom. He is both the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> what a Savior we serve. That's my introduction this morning. I have just a few quick applications I want to make. 
First, to serve God means to carry a cross. Luke 9.23, He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a fundamental, necessary fact of the Christian life. As we go through this life, we will bear shame. We will bear mockery. Well, the symbol, a cross is a symbol of hope. Put yourself in the issue. This is before he died. They don't know that this has to do with his death, and they don't understand that yet. What they know this is is an instrument of very extreme execution, one of the worst that humankind has ever, uh, ever dreamed up. And they make them carry that cross to the place of execution as a way of shaming them in the community. In this life, we will struggle. We will face opposition. Cross is a means of execution. There will be those that even give their lives for their faith. It's not always a bed of roses. But here's what we're assured. We're not assured that this life is going to be easy. What we're assured of is the life to come is going to be worth it. Anything we face down here will be worth it in the kingdom to come. Second, I want to say beware of shortcuts. Human nature is we want everything now. We want it now. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to save up our money. Let's make a monthly payment. Let's get it now. We want everything now, now, now. Satan knows that. He knows our tendencies. He preys upon that weakness. He knows that marriage is hard sometimes. He knows it'd be a lot easier to just have your fun. Don't make the commitment. He knows these things. He knows it'd be easier. He offers a shortcut. He knows it takes time to change people. He knows it takes time to, to lead, to disciple, these kind of things. So He'll offer shortcuts. He'll say, here's your chance. Just blow them out of the water. Give them a piece of your mind, even if you can't spare it. You know, he'll give you these chances. He'll say, just, just, just take care of them. Run them off. Do something. He knows that the Christian life is hard. So he says, oh, look, here's an easier way. Here's an easier way. You don't have to live it that way. Basically, goes all the way back to Garden of Eden. He's saying, yeah, if God said, really, you don't have to do that. But can I tell you, Every treat that Satan offers is full of poison and it's full of hooks. It looks good, it looks like a shortcut, but there's danger involved. Stay strong, stay true, stay faithful. Third thing I want to say is look at life from a heavenly perspective. Musicians, y'all can go ahead and come up. I'm just about done. Look at life from a heavenly perspective. Like, like I pointed out before, the wisdom of this world runs counter to the wisdom of God. It doesn't make sense what Christ did there. If you look at, take out the spiritual, take out everything else, from a worldly perspective, Christ was the biggest fool to ever live for not just taking the keys to this world and going. Even today, there are those, it doesn't make sense. Sunday, it's one of your only days off. Why not sit back, prop your feet up, watch the Cowboys lose? You know, why, why not just have some fun? 
Why, why not sleep in? It doesn't make sense. You're barely making it by. The economy's terrible. Inflation's eating your lunch, literally. Why, why, why give to the church? Why give to missions? Why do these things? So it doesn't make sense. And I'm going to tell you, from a worldly perspective, no, it does not make sense. It doesn't. But you can't look at it from the worldly plane. You have to look at it from the higher level. When you look at what Christ turned down, turning down the kingdom, it's looking at it from a higher level because he could see not the cross and the suffering. He could see beyond it. He can still see. He's going to come back. The kingdom is going to come. It didn't stop. In fact, it's going to be the greater because of it. From a heavenly perspective, you can see that beyond the cross there is a crown. And the fourth and last thing I want to say is if Christ embraced the cross, so should we. He didn't run from it. When Christ was born, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a tragedy. We hear so many tragic stories. Oh, this, this terrible thing happened. Oh, they didn't deserve that. When Christ was born, His face was set on one direction, and it was headed for that old rugged cross. It was headed for Golgotha. It was headed for Mount Calvary. He knew the nails. He knew the beating. He knew what was coming. I like there's a song, and also, Gory, I thought you might actually sing it this morning because I thought about it, but there's a song uh, she sang before called There'll Come a Day. And I love, there's a little line, and I think it's in a bridge in that song, that says, His humanity cried, Lord, any other way. His divinity rose up and said, This price I must pay. I love that little line in that song. Christ didn't run from the cross. By the way, where is our salvation? It's in the old rugged cross. Say, so, well, that's shameful. I want to do it myself in my own power. That doesn't work. Our salvation is going back and clinging to the old rugged cross. Our life, our victory, <laughs> is when we cling to the old rugged cross. Christ didn't shame, didn't shame from it, didn't run from it. He fully embraced it. For the Christian, our life begins when we kneel at that cross. When we look up and say, Christ, I, I, I can't save myself. My sins are too many, but you paid the price for me, and I'm trusting in you for salvation. That's where the Christian life begins. And the rest of the life, we don't just kneel at it. We put it on our shoulder and we carry it as we go through this life. A kingdom without a cross. How the temptation is there. But you cannot. You cannot have it. There must be the cross to have the kingdom and the glory to come. What number there? Only if we stand for time of the invitation. 285. 285 there in the, uh, in the Baptist hymnal. Number 285. We'll have a short time of the invitation here this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of your word and Lord, this thought and chasing it down through Scripture, just uh, amazing to see all these pieces put together, to see the idea of the kingdom, to see the depth of that offer, that testing that was made of Christ, 
It just makes His determination, His will, His love for us even deeper than we can imagine. Lord, as we look at what He endured for us, when we look at what He forsook to save our souls, let it be an example unto us to be like Him, to embrace the cross, to carry the cross, to not look at the things of this world, to look for shortcuts in our life, but to keep an eye on heavenly things, knowing this world is not our home, but there is a heaven, there is a kingdom to come, and that's where our treasure truly needs to be laid up. Lord, simple thoughts here this morning. I pray that You would challenge our hearts as You have mine, as I've been pondering over these for the last few days pray this is a challenge and an encouragement to, to the people and Lord, just press these truths into our hearts and minds here during this invitation time, I pray in thy holy name.